Hello and welcome back to the Money Markets and Macro Podcast by Atticus Capital. I'm your host, Liam Hennessy. Today we're going to be discussing something fairly interesting that came across my desk over the past week from the BIS. We will get to this report in the second half of the podcast, but per usual, we'll start out with the markets and what the markets have been up to in the past week. There's been a lot of developments. We had payroll data. We had some other economic data come through. There's a lot of analysis out there on payroll. So I'll let others cover that for you guys. We'll discuss some more unique things coming across the wire on this podcast. Starting out here, we're going to take a look at oil. Oil is up at 92.61. We were previously back on the uh, 26th of September. We were down at $76 a barrel. So we are up about 25%. Oh, sorry, 21% from the lows, 22%. So a substantial rise in a fairly short period of time. So throughout the month of October, late September, and early November, the price of oil has risen by a fairly substantial margin. We still have quite a significant rise from the earlier part of the year in January of 2022. Oil is up 23.37%. So given even the uh, strategic petroleum reserves being used, it has been unable to quell the fairly substantial rise in oil. We did have a very very volatile March and February and April. We had, an, uh, a, again, a fairly substantial uh, share of volatility from June leading into September, but it was obviously on the decline. So there were clearly some inventories being built and it looks like there might be a reversal in that downward trend. I've been looking at 131.05 as my top range limit for about a year now. That's sort of been where I've been looking. So we'll see if we get there. Europe has a very tough winter ahead of it. So there's likely going to be some more volatility in the energy markets. Moving over to equities. Now, I mentioned on one of the previous podcasts that there were... There was a significant trend being built in the Standard & Poor's 500 index, the S&P. One of the charts I posted on my Twitter, if you want to follow me there, at uh, Spartan Charts, was the SPX index, which is the true index of the Standard & Poor's 500. And I identified this range between 3870 and 3900 on the S&P as a significant supply zone. We saw a fairly strong trend all the way back leading from October, early October, early to mid-October, up till about late October. The markets had seen a fairly substantial rise in the S&P, more significantly, uh, between essentially the 10th of October and the 1st of November. There was around an eight and a half increase, 8.5% increase in the S&P index. So fairly large, some good gains to get from there. And then we ran into the supply zone. There were a couple of options that could have come if a true bear, uh, if a true bull was 
or if a true bull market was underway, we would have seen likely the supply range being taken out and the market would rise to around 39.75. That's likely where we would have gone if we had been in a continuous bull market. But alas, that is not the case. We saw a very dramatic fall on the 2nd of November, where the market fell by 2% in one day. We preceded that, or we followed with another fall of about half a percent, and then a final fall of about 1% the day after. So there's about 3.5% fall in a, a three-day period on the S&P between the second and, oh, sorry, this was the 45-minute chart. Apologies, I was assuming I was looking at the daily chart, but again, between the 2nd the and the 3rd of November, there's about 3.5% fall. So fairly substantial. We're seeing a little bit of a bounce here off of 37.18. We'll see where this market wants to go. There's room to the upside to around 38.60. And then again, there's more significant room to the downside to 36.35. But this podcast is not meant for technical analysis, so we'll keep it short for the rest of the indexes. The NASDAQ composite is still in rough shape, around 10,475, still trading at the lower range of this current cycle, where we see a recent low back on the 12th of October and 13th of October, around 10,200, all the way down to 10,085. We're still trading around there. There has been no real recovery in the NASDAQ composite. Obviously, a lot of the tech names are leading the charge to the downside. On the other hand, the Dow Jones doing markedly better than the NASDAQ composite index. The Dow Jones has rallied, that would be 13% off of the recent lows set back on uh, late December. And again, we did touch those low levels in early October, but from the 13th of October until today, we have seen roughly a 13% rise in the Dow Jones, leading us to believe that industrial utility and material names are ones that are clearly performing and outperforming some of those tech-heavy stocks. A couple of other elements that we saw in the last week in the markets was the sharp one-day rise in the price of gold. Gold futures rose 2.8% on Friday, November 4th, which is one of the most substantial moves that we've seen in any asset class in the past couple of weeks, past couple of months, you could say. Peter Schiff on his Twitter was discussing this. We'll see. There's been no real range break in the price of gold. Once we really get above 1750 is likely where you're going to see a lot more volume start to hit in gold futures. Same type of scenario here in silver. Silver, the chart for silver looks a little better. Looks a little stronger than it does for gold. Silver on Friday rose by 7%. So very, a very substantial rise for the price of silver. There are some technical patterns that we are seeing on the daily chart for silver that are looking extremely bullish. But again, we will have to see if silver can surpass some recent supply ranges all the way up until about $22.5. Above those levels, there are essentially clear skies 
to around $26, $27 an ounce. Next, we're gonna take a look at a couple of currencies. The dollar, obviously leading our analysis for currencies has been a little volatile the past uh, month or so. From about uh, late September until today, we've seen the dollar essentially trading within a range of 114 to 109 and a half. So on Friday, the dollar did see quite a substantial fall. The dollar fell by nearly 2% on Friday. While you can guess the rest of currencies, some foreign currencies appreciated against the dollar on that day. Nothing too severe happening in the dollar so far. Once we start to break some of these ranges, that's when things will start to change and our opinions will develop a little more. If the dollar rises above 114 and a half, right around that level, there's going to be some substantial implications for that. Same thing goes if the dollar falls below 109 and a half. So we'll see if these ranges continue and if the dollar continues to trade in this volatile pattern or if it decides to make a move and choose a direction since there is no clear direction as of today. So keeping the market section short for today, I wanted to essentially just go through this BIS report with you guys and cover a little bit of what's going on in the banking sector and the global liquidity sector. That's been a big theme uh, of a lot of my work over the recent months has been trying to understand, trying to look at, trying to get a grasp on what this global liquidity system is and how it really operates and functions. And these reports give a little bit of an insight into how exactly things are going under the surface. So here on the, uh, the 31st of October, <clears throat> excuse me, the BIS published this report, Statistical Release, BIS International Banking Statistics and Global Liquidity Indicators at end June 2022. Here are the highlights from this report. Banks cross-border claims increased in Q2 of 2022 by $782 billion, raising the year-on-year -year growth rate to 8%. Derivatives valuations drove this increase, while new credit through loans and bond holdings rose a modest $100 billion. Credit to emerging market and developing economies expanded by $28 billion, despite the drop in credit to Brazil, China, and Russia. Cross-border credit to Russia continued to fall by more than $4 billion, while liabilities to Russia saw the largest increase on record, plus $74 billion dollars as a result of blocked coupon and principal repayments following western sanctions credit denominated in euros and yen expanded while credit in u.s dollars fell for the first time in a year down 332 billion partly due to seasonal factors against the backdrop of rising interest rates dollar borrowing by non-banks outside the united states via syndicated loans and bonds contracted in both Q2 and Q3, foreshadowing weaker growth in credit overall. So that's the introduction to what this report's going to cover. And <clears throat> before we start reading this and reading through this report, it's not too long, but I highly recommend going through it for yourself. There's a lot of data 
There are a lot of charts. And if you have the charts available, you can make sense of the text and a lot. You can make a lot more sense of the text if you have the charts right underneath and you can visualize what is really taking place while you're reading through it. But to get an introduction, we'll read a couple of elements of this report. We won't go through the entire report. There's 22 pages and most of it's charts. And that's a little harder to explain, but there's a couple of things that I wanted to point out early on is the derivative values, the uh, emerging and, and uh, developing markets, and some of the elements that we're seeing affecting the Chinese economies. So starting out here, reading this derivatives values surged element, but bank credit was more muted. So it says here, the BIS locational banking statistics, LBS, show that banks cross-border claims expanded by $782 billion during the second quarter of 2022 an increase of 8% year-on-year. On an FX and break-adjusted basis, this expansion was driven by an outsize rise in the market value of derivatives, plus 115 billion, especially those reported by banks in the euro area, against the backdrop of evaluated, sorry, elevated uncertainty and market volatility. Excluding derivatives and other residual claims, the Q2 increase in bank credit, i.e. loans and holdings of debt securities, was more modest at $100 billion. So one of the things this tells me is that as we see expansion of the value of derivatives, that leads me to believe that a lot of these financial institutions are holding a lot more, you could say, hedge-based derivatives, hedge-based derivative positions. So they see that there's uncertainty in the future, be that energy, be that treasuries, be that interest rates, be that economic growth slowing, especially in the Eurozone, be it prices continuing to rise. A lot of these financial institutions are increasingly buying hedge positions in the derivatives market. Likely these will be in the form of swaps, dollar swaps, equity swaps, whatever it is or forwards, which are a lot more complex and a lot easier to change around and tailor to your specific needs with less so happening in standardized futures and options market. I very well could be incorrect on this. That's only my assumption based on how larger firms like to operate in the derivatives market, typically over the counter markets. So the next big element here in this report is going to be the credit to emerging markets and domestic economies. So it says here, banks cross-border credit to emerging market and developing economies, EMDEs, increased by $28 billion overall in Q2, up 2% year over year, but with large differences within regions. Credit to many countries in Latin America rose, but the $14 billion drop in credit to Brazil resulted in an overall drop of $5 billion to the region. Credit to Africa and the Middle East rose by $19 billion, extending a long spell of increases since 2014, particularly to countries in the Middle East. 
credit to emerging Asia-Pacific expanded by $8 billion, despite continued retrenchment from China by $23 billion in Q2, leading to a cumulative decline of $114 billion over the past year, down 12%. Mainly Chinese banks operating outside China continue to reduce their claims on the mainland. In the rest of the Asia-Pacific region, credit to Korea expanded the most by $21 billion, followed by Pakistan and Indonesia. The CBS shed more light on how banking systems' exposures to China have evolved recently. Non-Chinese banks' foreign claims on China fell by $32 billion in Q2 of 2022, or by $68 billion over one year, down 7%. Their claims on banks in China declined the most, followed by claims on the official sector. Separately, foreign banks' other potential exposures to China fell by $26 billion. So, we'll go through the rest, but a lot of this has been discussed at length by Jeff Snyder and Eurodollar University. He's been discussing the huge problems that have been showing up in the Chinese economy, more specifically in Chinese FX reserves, which have been falling precipitously. So the Chinese discussion, it's very complex. China is a very complicated economy. And I, I would be foolish to believe I understood in depth how a lot of this operates, especially as it relates to China. But what I can tell from this report is that there's not only a credit shortage, that may be one element, but that also tells me that there are some hesitations as it comes to the Chinese economy. And this is something, if you listen to Jeff Snyder's recent podcasts, and you can find them on YouTube or on Spotify, where he discusses not so much the economic elements that are impairing the Chinese economy, be it the zero COVID policies, be it the weakness in their currency, be it the weakness in the reserves, but more of what's happening politically in China and how a lot of what's happening politically, given the 20th Party Congress, the results of that, and some of the interesting things that happened around that time period, how those are affecting investors outside and even within China to maybe reassess their investments in China and moving forward on a moving forward basis. So keep that in mind. And and again, if you have the time, I, I highly recommend there's about three podcasts or three episodes. I can remember from Jeff over the past roughly three months where he's discussed at length, not so much the Chinese economy, but some of the cultural changes and societal changes and political changes that are happening in China as well. And that's very important to understand when you're assessing such a large and culturally or historically culture-based society such as China. All right, continuing on. Emerging Europe continued to attract cross-border credit in Q2, up $6 billion. Over the past year, the region received credit amounting to $29 billion, up 7%, which Chechia accounted for the bulk of $20 billion, 
followed by Hungary, plus 8 billion, and Poland, plus 5. While credit to Turkey had fallen by 3 billion in the last quarter, Poland, Turkey, and Czechia each attracted more than 1.5 billion in new bank credit. Banks in most countries continued to reduce cross-border credit to Russia, but some reported a surge in liabilities to Russia. Banks reduced their cross-border credit to borrowers in Russia by $4.5 billion, following a similar decline in Q1. At the same time, they recorded a surge in cross-border liabilities. The $74 billion increase was the largest on record, with the bulk accounted for by liabilities to the central bank of the Russian Federation, following Western sanctions. For example, Euroclear Bank publicly reported a $72 billion rise in liabilities at the end of June 2022 that resulted from the accumulation of blocked coupon payments and redemptions on its balance sheet. BIS reporting banks' net cross-borders, net cross-border liabilities, this is liabilities minus claims, to Russia thus doubled in Q2 alone to $147 billion. So, this is to say there's still more shenanigans that are happening as it relates to the Russian Federation, the Russian economy. We'll see how this plays out. I'm not going to jump the gun here. There are many moving parts as it relates to both the conflict and the economic situation on the ground in Eastern Europe. And again, I am not there, so I have even less of an understanding than people simply on the ground in Europe. So at some point, in time, we will come back to this discussion and cover a little more at length what's happening with Russia. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a better idea from people closer to the action, I highly recommend listening to the Duran podcast. You can find them, I'm assuming, on most platforms. So the last element here that I wanted to cover was simply the global liquidity indicators that the BIS is reporting on. You know, we'll take a look at the first couple of paragraphs here. It says, the BIS global liquidity indicators, GLIs, track credit to non-bank borrowers, covering both loans extended by banks and funding from global bond markets through the issuance of international debt securities, IDS. The main focus is on foreign currency credit denominated in three major reserve currencies, US dollars, euros, and Japanese yen, to non-residents, i.e. borrowers outside the respective currency areas. The GLIs, which are, again, global liquidity indicators, monitor growth in this credit relative to that denominated in those same currencies to residents within these currency areas, as reported in the National Financial Accounts. In Q2 of 2022, foreign currency credit denominated in U.S. dollars contracted while that in euros expanded. As a result, year-over-year growth rates diverged further. Dollar credit to non-bank borrowers outside the United States stood at $13.3 trillion. Credit to non-bank borrowers outside the euro area remained strong at 10% year-over-year, pushing the amount outstanding to 3.9 trillion euros which is $4.1 trillion. Yen credit to non-bank borrowers outside Japan accelerated to 10% year-over-year through a jump in bank loans. 
16%. Year-over-year, this increased yen lending by both Japanese and other banks pushed the stock of credit to 49.8 trillion yen, which equates to 370 billion U.S. dollars. In all three currencies, the issuance of IDS slowed down. Foreign currency credit to non-banks in emerging market and developing economies, EMDEs, also weakened in dollars, but accelerated in euros. This left the respective stock at $4.2 trillion and excuse me, 0.8 trillion euros. Dollar credit to EMDEs declined by 7 billion during Q2 of 2022 after six consecutive quarterly expansions. Dollar credit to non-banks in Asia-Pacific fell the most, down 13 billion, mainly reflecting lower credit to borrowers in China, down 21 billion, followed by those in emerging Europe, down 3 billion. By contrast, Credit to borrowers in Africa and the Middle East, up $7 billion, and Latin America, up $2 billion, grew. In contrast to the dollar credit, growth in euro credit to EMDEs gained momentum. Euro-denominated loans grew by 23 billion euros in Q2, whereas net issuance of IDS, gross issuance minus redemptions, added little. Borrowers residing in emerging Europe received most of the new euro credit, up 16 billion euros, followed by Asia Pacific, up 8 billion euros. The only region that saw contraction was Latin America, down 2 billion euros, mainly on account of Mexico, which accounted for down 2 billion. We'll wrap up here. Looking ahead, high inflation and rising interest rates in many jurisdictions may have significant impact on foreign currency credit to EMDEs and advanced economies. Persistent dollar strength can pose balance sheet challenges to dollar borrowers whose assets or revenues are in local currencies. While the GLI data for Q3 of 2022 will be available only in January of 2023, data from Dialogic can provide timelier if partial insights in the meantime. Overall, these data foreshadow a further slowdown of dollar financing in Q3 for bonds as well as for term loans. Weakness in dollar credit in Q2 continued into the third quarter, especially for debt issuance by non-financial corporates in advanced economies. Issuance by these firms dropped markedly, down $18 billion dollars and the downward trend in issuance continued into Q3, with July down $4 billion, August down $6 billion, and September down $12 billion. These data pointing to a further slowdown. As regards to non-financial corporates in emerging market and developing economies, Q3 data suggests a cumulative decline by $9 billion in the outstanding stock of dollar debt between July and September. So that's where we end up today, right at the break of November. So a lot of what this BIS report is saying is just a snapshot of the past couple of quarters in the global economy, what's happening, where's credit, where's the liquidity moving, who is seeing a squeeze and who isn't. It's fairly clear that South America, 
and China are seeing the largest problems as it comes to attaining dollar liquidity and credit. While there's still some persistent funding for developing Europe and for the Middle East. So, in in coming reports, and I think in a coming podcast, we can dig down a little deeper into some of the specifics. I would like to cover a little more on the credit issues that we're seeing in China. Although, I'm going to be honest, I am no expert in a lot of this data here. I'm going through, and with you guys, I'm learning. You know, we're, we're all learning here together. This is what this podcast is all about. So, if you like, please share, drop a like, and we will see you all on the next one.